classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing Slaughterhouse-Five, or The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death by Kurt Vonnegut. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. I had a lot of fun revisiting this high school. I think I read this in AP Lit. I had a lot of fun revisiting this book. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, I really enjoyed rereading this one as well. I loved Kurt Vonnegut in high school. And this one isn't my favorite of his, but I love his writing. It was so, I feel like this is one of those books that you probably get something different out of when you read it at different points in your life. And certainly reading it as a high schooler is very different than reading it as an adult. So yeah, it was great to return to. Did you pick up Kurt Vonnegut just on your own in high school or was it something that you read with a class? I picked him up on my own. I'm not totally sure what drew me to him, Um, but I read uh, Sirens of Titan, Cat's Cradle, and Slaughterhouse-Five all at some point in high school. And yeah, I've never gotten to study him in a class. I would have loved that. You said you did study it in high school. Yeah, I mean, study might be loose. I did. This is one that I read all the way through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> by it is by short. junior, <laughs> it is short. And by junior and senior year of high school, I feel like I had teachers that I don't know. I here's the deal: when we talk about high school reading, and we're like, "Oh, we didn't read everything." For me, I'm really mostly talking about my sophomore year of high school mm-hmm. because I really didn't like my teacher. I was. It, this is like. I don't know if this is going to sound braggy, but it's like the classic gifted kid problem of I'm bored, so I'm not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just really hated it, which I was awful because I loved English class. So that's what I mean. But by junior and senior year, I was reading everything that my teachers put in front of me. I really liked my teachers. And I think that these men who were teaching AP English and like British lit I think it was just that their time, like their age, that they really liked reading these war stories. (laughs) They were really into the postmodern and the Tim O'Brien and other Vietnam war stories and just in general. And I, I thinking back, like I didn't think anything of it then, but I just think a lot of it had to do with their generation and what they were interested in reading with all of us. And Slaughterhouse-Five was different from anything I'd ever read in class before, so I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and when you have a teacher who's teaching something they're really passionate about, of course that that helps. But yeah, I think, like you said, it's so different from most of what you get to experience when you read classic lit. I mean, in so many ways, it's different in structure. It's different because there are cartoon boobs in it. It's different because (laughs) there are aliens. Like, there's just so much um, that sets it apart from, like, what we typically think of when we think of, like, dead white men writers. And there's still, of course, some—this is an older book. There are some, you know, types of language or just issues maybe we would not see addressed in the same way today. But if you've just been reading, I don't know, Victorian lit and Shakespeare, and then someone hands you Slaughterhouse-Five, it's like, whoa, books can be something totally different. Yeah, it's such an argument for making sure that there's variety of genre in the classroom. On paper, this is not a book that I would naturally pick up or that I would naturally gravitate towards. It's not really within my literary wheelhouse, but I really liked it as a teen and I really enjoyed reading it, reading it now. And yeah, I just felt like I got a lot more out of it that wasn't just boiled down to, well, you know, what does Vonnegut mean here? (laughs) Because I don't think Vonnegut always knows what he means. (laughs) Mm -mm. And I think he's often just having fun and Mm -hmm. uh, poking fun too. 
I I think maybe you saying that on paper, this isn't a book that you would necessarily gravitate towards or that fits in your wheelhouse would be a good place to start. But before we really dive into that, just know, listeners, we are going to talk about this book cover to cover. It's really not a book that can be spoiled, and we'll get into exactly why that is, but we think this will be a good episode to listen to either before you read Slaughterhouse-Five or if you haven't read it in forever, you don't need to go back and, and reread before listening. This is going to be more of more of a deep dive, and trust us, we really could not spoil this for you if we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> but Chelsea, what what are some of the elements of this book that make it seem like it wouldn't work for you? Okay, I think really the only thing is that I'm not a big speculative fiction sci-fi reader. I typically much prefer realistic fiction, and I tend to like books that dig really deep into character. So on that front, this doesn't seem like a book for me. But I love books with interesting structure. I love books with a really strong narrative voice. And I really like books that are meta in some way. So in that way, this book really does suit my reading tastes. What about you? Where do you fit in with all of that? I don't read a ton of sci-fi either, although I do read a lot more speculative fiction. And I I think in Vonnegut's world, this is more straight sci-fi, though he does write a lot of speculative fiction. So so yeah, that element gives me pause more like I I don't know that I pick up war books very often. And I certainly find myself if I am reading about wars, reading about women's experiences and less about the day in and day out of soldiers experiences in wars. So I think that element is what on the page makes this something that does not in many ways fit with all of the other things on my shelf. But that element of this story, I think, is what elevates this to being one of his most well-regarded and well-read books because it is doing really interesting stuff to make a pretty pointed political statement. And that is something that I, I enjoy. I like when authors engage with philosophical questions in unique ways. I think we should give just a really quick brief plot summary before we get into yes. what we really want to talk about, which is the <laughs> cool structure of this book. So Slaughterhouse-Five, it opens with a really interesting author's note. And we see right away that Kurt Vonnegut is going to insert himself in the story because not only is this speculative fiction slash sci-fi slash political commentary slash an anti-war novel, it's also somewhat biographical mm-hmm. and... And metafiction. Yeah, totally. And a lot of the war experiences in this book are from Kurt Vonnegut's real life. So it starts with that really interesting note and then gets into the story of Billy Pilgrim, who is an optometrist and was a chaplain's assistant in World War II. He ended up being a prisoner of war. He found himself at Dresden for the bombing of Dresden. And throughout all of this, he jumps back and forth to different points in his life, to the planet Tralfamador, where he lives in a zoo, and the (laughs) aliens collected him. And it's just, it's not even, it's not even a series of vignettes or short stories. It's like blips, like really quick blips of memory, blips of time that just has no linear structure throughout the book. It is pretty easy to follow given that our narrator always guides us. He says, now Billy is 10 and he's at the swimming pool. So it's not It's not like reading Faulkner where you're like, oh my gosh, where am I in this paragraph all of a sudden? He serves, the narrator serves as more of a guide, but I love the way you described it as like not even vignettes, but blips, because that's exactly 
what it is. And you might not finish a story in one of those blips until several pages later, right? And then you circle back to that, which is, it's it's just a really interesting way to tell this story. I think that this is the same across any version that you pick up. But what I found really interesting is it's not even like each clear section because there are a bunch of sections of the text broken up by dots. So it's like almost every single page, there are at least two or three, sometimes four sections across the two pages that you're looking at. So within those broken up sections, it's not like every single section jumps. So you can be reading the same time zone. So say you can be reading when he is in the POW camp for a couple of pages, but those pages are broken up and it still follows. But because it's broken up, it's just, I don't know if it is supposed to sort of mimic something about the way our brains work or if it has to do with memory or I I just thought that that was interesting. That's something I certainly never noticed the first time reading it. I find that really interesting as well. Yeah, because it's not um, it's not like cohesive for three pages and then we get a time blip necessarily. And it changes quite a bit as the, as the book goes on. Um, it kind of feels like the blips get get shorter at certain parts and sometimes he'll even kind of transition to a different time. He'll get unstuck. I, I love that word, the way he describes being unstuck in time in the middle of a sentence and back again at times. So it's it's not even particularly consistent in terms of how he he does it. And I, I think you're right that it probably is saying something about, about memory and about perception. It's convoluted at times and disjointed for sure. But again, he does a good job of guiding you through it. Yeah. Readability wise, it's really easy to get through. I mean, I know that my attention span is still not what it used to be like pre-pandemic. And, you know, this book broken up into tiny little sections. Kurt Vonnegut's writing style is really short and snappy. His sentences are... Yeah, they're just really short, a lot of simple sentences. And he gets right to the point. Like you said, he's a really good guide. So it it just went into my brain so easily. It's the best way I can describe it. Yeah, and I wasn't necessarily expecting that with this reread. We started talking about the sci-fi elements, how they are secondary, but Let's let's talk a little bit about that experience of reading the sci-fi elements and and including both like what he's doing with time and of course the alien planet and the zoo and all of those funny bits as well. Part of when I think about, you know, why did Vonnegut choose to incorporate some sci-fi elements into this book? I think a big part of it is just like that's what he likes. That's in so many of his works, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's the way he likes to write. It's just his thing. But I also think that sci-fi, what it does is it puts us in an unfamiliar world that allows us to get some distance from ours and really analyze our society from a different angle. And that's exactly what we get with the Tralfamadorians. We get to see their view of life and compare it up against ours. And it not only is that connected exactly to what's happening in Billy's life and his brain, but it's also connected to the structure of the book. So I was trying to find some of the sci-fi bookmarks that I have. And since we were just talking about structure, on page 112 of my copy, we get this little scene about how the Tralfamadorians read. And it says, we Tralfamadorians read them all at once. They have like little clumps of symbols. We read them all at once, not one after the other. There isn't any particular relationship between all the messages, except that the author has chosen them carefully. So that when seen all at once, they produce an image of life that is beautiful and surprising and deep. There is no beginning, no middle, no end, 
No suspense, no moral, no causes, no effects. What we love in our books are the depths of many marvelous moments seen all at one time. Which is what this book is. Yeah, I love that he put that in there and that that is exactly what he ended up writing. And I think a huge part of the book is to push readers to consider our views of cause and effect. And and both in terms of how we read a story and in terms of how we see the world. Of course, particularly war and violence, because that's what he's examining. But I think cause and effect in general. And I, I think I, I can imagine that being frustrating for a lot of readers because I know I know there are a lot of readers who get frustrated by events in books or characters in books whose actions like don't make sense given the circumstances. Like why would they respond in this way or why would this lead to this? And he's asking us to just question all of that, that cause and effect is an illusion that we make up because of how we experience time. I'm not sure that he's like saying that's true. I think he's just asking that question because the way the Trophamadorians view time is like looking at a mountainscape. They can see the entire thing at once and choose what to focus on rather than living moment to moment like the humans in the book and in our real lives do. Yeah, and the question of free will is brought into that several times throughout the book. And I think as I was reading, I was actually thinking, oh, this really reminds me of a couple of the conversations from Giovanni's room. Mm-hmm. Just because it was so fresh. And I know that some of those conversations were about like the French view of free will and choice versus the American view. And I was like, oh man, this is really echoing some <laughs> stuff here. Which I guess I'm trying to remember when this book was published. They weren't terribly far apart, were they? Yeah. And so they're both like working in that postmodernist time frame, which is questioning free will and is questioning purpose and cause and effect and why we choose to do what we do. But that's so interesting, Chelsea. I had not made that connection and I love it. So what else do you think we get out of the sci-fi elements other than having that meta effect of allowing us to sort of self-reflect on our concept of time to sort of reflect what Vonnegut is doing as an author? What are some of the other elements that the sci-fi aspect adds? I think humor. Kurt Vonnegut is funny. And he, even when he's writing about an extremely serious topic and he clearly wants to explore serious ideas, he still wants to make you laugh or at least like tilt your head (laughs) and ask what the hell's going on here. And the Tralfomadorians and their zoo and how they communicate with Billy and how Billy is just, you know, he's naked all the time in the zoo and he gets up and he goes to the bathroom and all of the aliens cheer for him because they love seeing his bodily functions. Like, it's just, it's funny. And I think that Vonnegut, some of his philosophies that he puts in his books are like kind of nihilistic, but then he also just wants you to see the absurdity of like human life in a really playful way. And so I think part of those sci-fi elements are to balance the seriousness. And describing this as a nihilistic book is probably like if we had to boil it down to one word about the tone, it's probably that. (laughs) It is strongly considered an anti-war book as I read, I, you know, you can certainly see that, but I also, it doesn't read like propaganda or it doesn't read like, oh, I'm trying to send this message. And so you can extrapolate the anti-war message, but I also think that message is like a product of the reception of the book, which I find really interesting. As a war book or an anti-war book, though, I think we should get into that because I mean, there are these dark humor moments, but this book is really, really dark 
quite violent. I mean, doesn't pull punches when it comes to the realities of war. I think that's a really interesting point about the the reception and what he's saying in the book. I, I think because of the way he plays with time and questions free will, and I think even says this in the little frame story of the book, that it's both anti-war and has the view that war is inevitable and therefore has great empathy for every almost everyone involved, um, which I, I really appreciate. And I do think that's part of what makes it feel not like he's writing propaganda or pushing a message. It's like he sees this as part of, of life and ex- is exploring it that way while also showing extremely harsh realities. We see a lot of the ironies of being human, that humanity can have some really precious and beautiful moments in it, and yet humans can be such destructive monsters. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of irony running through the book. One of my favorite moments from early in the book is, his last name is Weary. Is it Roland Weary? But the the soldier who Billy Pilgrim is kind of, he's traveling with trying to either find someone to surrender to or make it back to um, safety. And he describes Weary as being somebody who has been like constantly left out and abandoned his whole life. And that, that that's why he chooses people who are weaker than him and really, he, I mean, is really violent towards, towards people who are weaker than him. We're not supposed to like Weary, and we're not supposed to agree with how he treats Billy, which is terribly. But Vonnegut does have this really great sense of empathy, and I think also of understanding of motivation and how people's own hurts can cause them to hurt others both in that small scale with Weary and Billy and in the large scale with what he's saying about war. Sometimes I I wonder, and I think maybe because he gives the Tralfamadorians a voice and a humorous and witty voice at that, if he is trying to suggest that there is maybe a sort of freedom and relief from his sort of nihilistic thinking that I I don't really know where I'm going with this. I just don't really feel like Kurt Vonnegut feels that his view is super dark and bleak, even though we might feel like it's dark and bleak. Like I, I feel like there's just some, there's something slightly more nuanced to it, at least in, in his, the way he writes this kind of philosophy. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, you know, where that comes from, aside from just like our hopeful optimism. Yeah. But it does, I mean, this book is about coping with PTSD Mm -hmm. and telling stories as a coping mechanism. And it's pretty clear that that is what he is doing for himself as well. And the when you have a meta-narrative and you have a story about stories that is sort of signaling something there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, maybe that's where, where that's coming from, where that thought of yours is coming from. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I think that, you know, there, there are a lot of frustrating moments throughout this book, but it's very clear that Billy Pilgrim, because of how he is unstuck in time and how he has experienced his life, does not believe he has free will, does not try to change things for the better, or the worse, he he just, he lives the way he has seen his life play out throughout all of these slippings in time. And that that can be frustrating and, and sad, but there also seems to be this freedom he has in saying, like, this is how things are, and I, you know, accept what is coming and what I have been Dealt. And even the way the Tralfamadorians like see the end of the, the world and they're like, well, the world is always ending in every moment 
of the day. That's where we're headed. And there's just, I don't know, it, it is nihilistic. It is depressing. I don't want to think that there's no free will or cause and effect, but there's something like strangely beautiful about it to me as well. Doesn't it also just sort of reflect the general attitude of, I don't know, men who were at war in that time? I'm thinking like of grandfathers, great uncles who wouldn't utter a word about their war experiences, or if they were asked about it, you know, shrug it off and say, well, that's the way it was. And that's what we did because it was just what we had to do. And that's in the past. And it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it goes. So it goes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think, you know, again, reflective of the postmodern era in terms of thinking about war, thinking about the world and politics, but also postmodern writing and just engaging in those those ideas. And I I think he does it so well. And I'm so grateful for the the humor he puts in here and the way he seems to find balance between exploring the dark and creating worlds and ideas that are still fun to explore for readers. It's a really just interesting project he's doing with this. I think one of my favorite parts of the book, not only does he have this, you know, frame at the beginning of how he's going to insert himself into the narrative, it's so, it's included in blink and you could miss it ways Mm -hmm. of just one sentence. I was there. That was me. That was me. Yeah. And I just really thought that was interestingly done. One thing that before we get to our pairings, just one other thing that I certainly didn't notice as a high school student reading this, noticed way more now, was the constant talk of reproduction. (laughs) Yeah. Like babies are constantly mentioned. All of the female characters in this book are basically just baby machines. That's it. And it offers a really interesting contrast to all of the death talk, Mm -hmm. but it also doesn't seem to serve that much of a higher purpose to me, other than just being contrasting. Yeah, I mean, we even know he has a baby with his mate, human mate, (laughs) in the zoo on Trelfamador, and he does not even seem curious about what becomes of that that baby of his. Yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, it does seem kind of like a so it goes thing. Like there is death and destruction and things are terrible and we just keep reproducing because that's what we do. I, I agree. There could have been more interesting reflection on that. The... The way he writes female characters isn't great. The way he talks about bodies is really gross throughout. There are some things that Vonnegut does that that bother me for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that was a good one that you pointed out as well. Well, Sarah, should we get to our pairings? Yeah, let's do it. Before I reread this book, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to come up with some great sci-fi speculative fiction pairings for this. And I was just kind of scrolling through my mind library, trying to think of what those would be. And then when I reread it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is a war book. So my pairings are kind of split between those things. And I'm I'm curious to hear what you found for us, Chelsea. I have a little bit of a mix, too. So I acknowledged at the top of the show that this is not my typical genre. So I have a book that I'm currently reading and I have a couple that I feel good about recommending, but that I have not read personally. So the book that I'm currently reading that I think makes for an interesting pairing here is This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. This is a novella. It's an epistolary novella. And I just really felt like I had to at least pick one book that does something really interesting with structure here. So it's an epistolary novella, and it's a series of letters between red and blue. And through their correspondence, you get to know that they are on opposite sides of a war, and they are opposed combatants. 
But there's like this element of romance going on between them while the war rages. This book is not straightforward. It's pretty confusing, (laughs) but it's fun to just go along for the ride. So you read this correspondence and slowly sort of pick up that there's time travel involved, that this is, I don't know if it's dystopian or just another world altogether, but you start to just sort of pick up clues as you go about that. And it is both about war and about relationships. And I just think that it makes for a really fun pairing here because, you know, the interesting structure, the time element, this also has been optioned for TV and the authors are writing the script. So that's promising. Lots of things have been optioned for TV, so I don't know what's actually going to make it there. But I don't know. It's just a short, quick novella. I can certainly offer an update when I have gotten through it. It's it's not necessarily directly thematically connected to Slaughterhouse-Five, but touches on a couple of the same things and definitely, definitely an emphasis on the time travel. So that's This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. All right. My first pairing is Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chang, which is a short story collection. Ted Chang is a sci-fi writer, and you might be familiar with his name or the title of this collection because the title story here was the basis for the movie Arrival. And if you've seen Arrival, you know that it's doing similar time stuff as Kurt Vonnegut is in Slaughterhouse-Five. So that was a very clear connection in my mind. The title story is phenomenal, even better than the movie, which I did really enjoy because of the emotions and kind of the depth in which it explores the time element. So definitely recommend checking out the story if you enjoyed the movie, but every story in this collection is so interesting. The opening story is about a literal Tower of Babel where people are building this tower into the heavens and what it is like to go up that tower and who is who's there and who's not there. And it's just, it's so good. And what Ted Chang really does well and what his kind of project is in writing his stories is he takes a philosophical concept or a religious belief or a big question about life and the world, and he explores it through sci-fi and speculative fiction. And so I really feel like he and Vonnegut are similar in that way, in that they are using the tropes of these genres to talk about philosophy and to talk about life. Ted Chang is not as funny as Vonnegut. He has a much more earnest tone and his stories are, not that Vonnegut's stories aren't serious, but they have that snark element to them. Ted Chang's really don't, but I I just really feel like they're writing in a similar vein and, and working with similar ideas and this collection is phenomenal. So that's Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chang. The way that story of your life plays with time and language, I think, just makes it such a perfect pairing here. Yes. Yeah. And I really loved the focus in stories of your life on how language, like you said, impacts the way we experience time. And so I think literary nerds would love that story. All right. My next pairing is Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain. And I I really, really wanted to select at least one war book that had to do with the Iraq or Afghanistan wars, just to sort of have more of a modern connection with Slaughterhouse-Five. So Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk is a satire. And I don't think we talked about Slaughterhouse-Five as being satirical, but I think it definitely could fit in 
that category. And it is about the war in Iraq and it's set in Texas. So Billy Lynn is a soldier and he's a member of the Bravo squad and his squad was filmed doing something heroic, which skyrocketed them to sort of this widespread fame across America. And they are sort of getting this honor at the halftime of a Dallas Cowboys football game. So the book does some interesting things with structure and setting and flashbacks where we sort of get to see the fallout of Billy going home to his family. We get to see how the citizens around him sort of welcome him as a hero, but then also leave him and his squad in the dust and just expect them to pick up and go back to war and move on with their lives. And yeah, it's just doing interesting things structurally, interesting things with humor and satire. And also the main character's name is Billy. And I don't know if that is intentional, but I think it could absolutely be a nod. And I was thinking about, you know, there is actually a mention in Slaughterhouse-Five about Billy versus William and why Billy Pilgrim goes by Billy. Names are important in books. And Billy versus William really does speak to someone's age. It's a very boyish name, I think. And in Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, he's only 19 when he goes off to war. So there's also that connection with Slaughterhouse-Five of the Children's Crusade of these are babies going to fight wars. So I think there's a lot there as a pairing. I think it would be a I think it would be a good one to bring into the classroom. There's also a pretty well-received film, Joe Alwyn, Taylor Swift's boyfriend is the only way that I remember him. Um, he starred as Billy in that movie and I think it received some pretty good critical acclaim if you like book to movie adaptations. So that is Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain. I have heard great things about that book, and it sounds like a wonderful pairing for this. What do you have up next? Okay, I'm doing something fancy here, and I am pairing a pairing. So buckle up. So I I think I paired Kate Atkinson's Life After Life with The Remains of the Day because of the setting and how Life After Life is doing something interesting with memory and regret and choices. So Life After Life is a book about a young woman named Ursula Todd. Um, and in the opening scene, she is about to shoot Hitler. And the whole book then starts at the beginning of her life, leads up to that moment, but she dies countless times throughout the book. And each time she dies, we she starts over in her life and we get to see one small change, whether it's one of her choices or a choice of someone around her that lets her live a little bit longer this time until we finally see her arrive um, at her purpose. A God in Ruins is Kate Atkinson's companion novel to Life After Life, and it follows Ursula's little brother, Teddy. And where Life After Life is a book about infinite possibilities and how our choices uh, directly impact where our life leads, A God in Ruins is a book about a lack of choices and what it looks like to lead a life where it doesn't feel like you have free will. And so Teddy is a fighter pilot in World War II, and he always believed that he wouldn't end the war alive, and he does. And his life feels predetermined. That's how he feels. That's how it feels as a reader, that there's just nothing Teddy could do to impact where he ends up. And so they're just a really interesting set of novels following two siblings, both exploring choice, free will, agency, 
determinism and using really interesting structures to do that and and also commenting on on war and violence through that. So these are very different books than Slaughterhouse-Five, but together in particular, I think they're asking similar questions as Slaughterhouse-Five um, and very much exploring that idea of, of you know, why we fight wars and then free will and determinism in general. So those are Life After Life and A God in Ruins, both by Kate Atkinson. Okay, I have one final pairing here. This is another one that is very much focused on war. It is Regeneration by Pat Barker. And people might recognize her name. She authored The Silence of the Girls. I think that's her most recent release. So she wrote this trilogy, Regeneration is the First, And she wrote it about World War I and with a really heavy emphasis on the psychological effects. And she drew from, I believe, family members' experiences and firsthand accounts. And she actually includes real historical figures in the novel, which is interesting. So part of it focuses on treatment methods during the war for shell shock, PTSD, and Part of it sort of focuses on reintegration from the war and also sort of weaves in this class commentary, social commentary and politics. Her writing here, I so my husband has a copy of this book. I just flipped through some pages to see if I could get a feel for it. Her writing is really direct and clear, sparse prose but vividly descriptive. And so I think that fits really well with Slaughterhouse-Five. And we didn't talk a ton about the PTSD aspect of Slaughterhouse-Five, but I think you can definitely do a reading of it that way through a psychological lens and sort of, I don't know, you're not supposed to diagnose anyone, but you can diagnose characters. Billy Pilgrim is very obviously dealing with PTSD. And that felt important to highlight in at least one pairing here. So Regeneration by Pat Barker, it's about World War I. There are some real awful scenes, so just a heads up for that, in terms of the treatments for shell shock. So do know that. But I think the, the way that she weaves history into this narrative is really fascinating. And if you liked slaughterhouse five for that and for the writing style and you want to read about war in a different era that is told in that really direct style regeneration by pat barker might be a good way to go and i also saw that this was a well-received film i guess that is the theme of my pairings this week and johnny lee miller is one of the actors of mr knightley emma fame so oh wow i don't know it interests me. It's also really short. Okay. Another good note. Another plus. Slaughterhouse Five. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. All right. My final pairing. I'm not going to say too much about this one because it is a modern classic and we might very well cover it on the show at some point. You mentioned Tim O'Brien at the top of the episode. And as soon as I read that line, the children's crusade, This is what came to mind. So I'm pairing The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. It could very easily also have the alternate title of The Children's Crusade. It is about a platoon of young men serving in Vietnam. It's short stories, but it's kind of a novel in short stories. Like you return to all of the characters, come back, you get a fuller and fuller picture of their lives and their experiences in Vietnam by reading all of the stories, but you can can read them individually or, or parcel them out as well. Similar to Slaughterhouse-Five, this is metafiction. Tim O'Brien is a character in The Things They Carried, and much of the book directly discusses what is real and what is not real, and whether the characters in the book are real, whether Tim O'Brien, the character, is the same as Tim O'Brien, the author. He intentionally 
leaves you questioning what he is leaving out versus what he is including. Sometimes he will describe an entire uh, experience and then say, that never happened. And it's just so it's it's really interesting structure. It's one of my favorite books in terms of metafiction. I love what he's saying about storytelling and writing through this. It also very much focuses on PTSD and storytelling as healing. I will add the caveat that The Things They Carried is not the only book you should read about the Vietnam War. I think particularly when it comes to books about wars, it's important to read from multiple perspectives and different people's uh, experiences and involvement, different nations' experiences and involvement. So um, if we ever do cover the things they carried, we will certainly pair it with with some experiences of Vietnamese writers with the Vietnam War. But I do think this book is really heart-wrenching, beautiful in terms of how it talks about young men at war and how it talks about writing and is very much, I think, in conversation with Slaughterhouse-Five. So that is The Things They Carried. It's such a powerful book. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's so good. I've gotten to teach it quite a few times and it was a really interesting book to teach at an all-girls school. There are very few, maybe one female character in the book, but just, and I think for any reader, it's exceptionally powerful. He really pulls you in no matter what your level of experience with understanding conflict is. He 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 puts you there and it's intense. Okay. We are at the end of the show. This is when we share a pick of the week, which can be a bonus pairing, movie to watch, article to read, really anything that we think just fits along with what we've recommended in the episode. So Sarah, what is your pick that is a little bit of a bonus pairing for Slaughterhouse-Five? Before I get to my official pick of the week, I'm going to just do a quick plug for Kurt Vonnegut's memoir, which is called A Man Without a Country, which is tiny. It's like 100 pages long. It's filled with his hilarious cartoons. He says he's a man without a country and that the library is the only country he feels like he belongs to. He's just a it's a good way to know if you might like his writing. But my official pick of the week is Ted Chang on Ezra Klein's podcast. I think that was just this week. And I love the Ezra Klein show. Ezra Klein asks such good questions and he's he's just so smart. It baffles my mind how he <laughs> does everything he does. But he was asking Ted Chang a lot about philosophy and sci-fi and um, also speculative fiction and his biggest fears and worries. I think people like to ask sci-fi and speculative fiction authors that, like, what are, what do you think is going to lead to the destruction of the world? Because they think about it a lot. Um, and so it's just a fantastic conversation. So we'll put a link to that podcast episode in our show notes. How about you, Chelsea? Okay, I was scrolling NetGalley last night when I should have been falling asleep. This is a pandemic habit that I picked up. Just happens every once in a while, and I go with it. So I always end up finding something interesting. That's the problem. (laughs) There's no motivation for me to stop. So last night, I'm scrolling NetGalley, and I see that there's a book coming out on October 12th called The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. It is by Tom Roston, and it sounds really good. It is actually available now for like a read now. So with NetGalley, some books you have to request, some are a read now, and if you have an account, you can just click that button and it'll go right to your Kindle. So I have it on my Kindle right now. I think I'm going to have to start it shortly after reading Slaughterhouse-Five just to keep that momentum going. But basically what Tom Rostin does is he tells the story of Vonnegut's life and how he wrote and published Slaughterhouse-Five. And he also sort of goes into the experiences of soldiers and writers today, people who have 
taken Slaughterhouse-Five and really made it a touchstone in their life and work. So he interviews Vonnegut's kids. He interviews Vonnegut's scholars. He interviews psychologists. He also talks to Tim O'Brien. And I just think that anyone who read and enjoyed Slaughterhouse-Five would probably enjoy this book. And I just think it's a really interesting way to look at an author's life, like through the lens of one of their most seminal works. So I'm really excited to read this. If you have a NetGalley account, you can click the read now button. It is The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. Oh, that sounds so good. I'm going to have to go click read now as soon as we get off this call. I know. I was kicking myself. I was like, oh man, that would have been really nice to read before the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh well. (laughs) All right, Chelsea. Well, this was so fun to talk about this book. It is just one of those books. It is dark. It is heavy, but there's so much to dig into and so much humor. So I'm really glad we picked this one up this April. Me too. And speaking of digging into books together, we are reading Giovanni's Room together for Classics Club. We're going to discuss it at the end of the month. But if you also want to chat with fellow readers about Slaughterhouse-Five, we are setting up a thread in our patrons-only Discord group too. That's just like a way that you can talk back and forth in a text chat setting and share your thoughts about the book. So to chat with us and the rest of Classics Club to get live and recorded classes and bonus episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings to join our community. And if you want to be the first to know about when we're going to pop on Instagram Live, when we post new and exciting Patreon content and more, sign up for our weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. We can't wait to hear about your experiences reading Kurt Vonnegut. So be sure to tag us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod. We also love to see when and where you're listening. So tag us in those Instagram stories too. Keep spreading the word about Novel Pairings Podcast by sending your friends a link to your favorite episode or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Michelle Timmons for her assistance and to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with an episode full of speculative fiction and sci-fi recommendations. Until then, we declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Thank you.